Our guest today is one of the world's most accomplished and acclaimed stage actresses, having appeared with the Royal Shakespeare Company in, among others, The Taming of the Shrew, The Merchant of Venice, Much Ado About Nothing, Coriolanus, and Antony and Cleopatra, and also in The West End, in Whose Life Is It Anyway?, and The Sisters Rosenzweig. She has also forged a career as a director, both in England and in her home country of South Africa, where she has staged such works as Othello and The Cherry Orchard. From London, welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm honored to meet Janet Suzman. Hello. Welcome. Let's jump right into it, because it seems to be a thread through your whole career. Antony and Cleopatra. You've played it, <laughs> you've directed it. It's, it's the most remembered. First of all, why... Why do you think your performance in it years ago is still so remembered and so spoken of? We're we're talking about a production that was some more than 40 years ago. So I can't really answer that except that I guess we got it right, perhaps. It's always a possibility (laughs) to think that you might have got a play right. It doesn't often happen. Um, because there is no right. I mean, I can hear a chorus of voices saying, what do you mean right, what do you mean right, and indeed, what do I mean by that? The fact that these plays are so hugely open to interpretation is a measure of their greatness, of course. Um, But, you know, it was Trevor Nunn who directed that, and he's got no mean brain. I've always been interested. I did read English at university, which means nothing at all, except that I'm quite at home with analysing a text. I don't find it frightening or weird. And I think a lot of actors do find it odd to do a bit of lit crit. But that's what you have to do with a bit of Shakespeare, really, Hmm. just a little bit. And so his idea that there was a mystery at the heart of that play, Antony and Cleopatra, is something that I've always... I responded to at the time... And I've now developed it even more, having come to it as a director all those years later. And I think probably it's difficult to comment on yourself, as you probably have discovered, having talked to a zillion fascinating and illustrious theatre folk. Self-analysis is not really... You know, we don't watch ourselves in a mirror the way a dancer must to see the line. We don't analyse ourselves too much. But I think in playing that mighty foreigner in English canon, which is Shakespeare's canon, he was so clearly writing about one world in opposition to another world, which makes it a very contemporary play for us still, always will. And the foreignness of Cleopatra, maybe there was something of that in my personality. I don't, you know, I I think it's obvious. I was obvious casting in Mm -hmm. a way. And I think that your question is interesting because the play is interesting. And it has gone on fascinating me all these years, not least because she's the only autonomous woman in the whole canon of Shakespeare's plays. What do you mean by the only autonomous woman? Well, she's the only queen that's on a throne with a country to govern. All the others of Shakespeare's queens are either tumbled off the throne or have gone mad or too old to be either cogent or in a ruling position. There's not a queen in all the plays of Shakespeare who has any power except sort of her, except our Cleopatra, who was still very much in a powerful position, and it was Rome who needed her to keep her on side. 
historically. So she has power and she uses it. In a sense, she's powerless because she can't function without Rome. All this sounds familiar, I suppose, in our, our politics today. But for that reason, and because I'm a... I think we have to call ourselves very much post-feminists now. We've all gone through something which has sort of stalled, perhaps, maybe even failed, which is the feminist movement. But there's no doubt that the shortage of parts... For women, am I going to get onto a subject that you might be wanting to broach? I don't know. Keep going. Um, please stop me if, if, if no, I'm No, you're I'm saying the shortage of, of parts for women? No, not at all. Uh, there is a tremendous shortage of parts for women. So anybody who's got an ounce of curiosity or energy left in them after having become an actress will moan about this and seek to do something about it, really. You say that we're now post-feminism, or maybe that feminism has failed, but at the time you played Cleopatra in the very early 70s, we were still in the throes of the first wave of feminism. Yes, yeah, so I and sunk into its, into its midst with that part. You may, yeah, probably you're right. I probably did. There was someone with a bit of a brain as well as a heart, as well as a kind of sexuality which she used shamelessly but I think at the heart of the mystery of our reading of the play was you knew exactly how much Antony was enthralled to her but not at all how much she to him hmm. and now there's been a recent book about Stacey Schiff that was reviewed in the New York Times a mere month ago well the two. new book about Cleopatra yes yeah. the actual historical Cleopatra as much as one can tell yes as much as one can tell one's guess is right. Her affair with Antony was largely expedient. I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of feeling there as well. Um, and Shakespeare has captured every last ounce of that in the poetry of this play, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. But the actual reason why she needed Antony was to keep um, Egypt on, a, on an even keel. I don't advocate always uh, looking for parts that are autonomous, but there are precious few for women. And there are a lot of gutsy, intelligent actresses out there. I could name a dozen, but there's no need for me to do that. The people who listen will be able to name them on their hands. Um, who long for a, a roster of roles that have the kind of content that we all long for, but which just isn't there. So well, in a way, I played it too young. I would hmm. have liked to have come at it again a bit later, but now I've give, now it's Kim Cattrall's turn. Well, you said a few moments ago that actors aren't particularly self-analytical or self-aware. I've actually found many actors to be hyper self-critical and self-aware. You said you were obvious casting. Sometimes obvious casting is too obvious and it doesn't pose the challenge. Yeah. But it sounds like for you... The role gave you something you were looking for. Well, to the extent, I suppose, if I look back over a very long career, I feel, although I've lived in England for since 1960, which is a hell of a long time, I don't actually feel very English. Hmm. And so I guess I don't see myself in sort of the Lady Bracknell line of parts. 
uh, if you like. And those can sometimes yield richnesses for um, for older actresses. So the the side of me that is not English, I suppose, the exogenous Janet, is the one that you know is more easily cast in foreign roles, hmm. perhaps. Well, we're going to come back to Antony and Cleopatra. Let's let's talk about your growing up. In South Africa, you uh, said to me before we began taping that apartheid was in place by the time you were really of an age to begin looking for career and for schooling. And, Not and all quite. Of that. I was nine. Okay. When the nationalists came into power, yeah, I was saying it was all by yes, but as as yeah. you were coming older and, and thinking it was there, but it did come in your in your childhood. Were you first of all interested in and seeing theater? At a young age, when no, did that become part of your life? Not at all. Johannesburg was very much not a cultural hub. Honestly, I remember seeing Margot Fontaine. I remember seeing Beniamino Gili singing in an Italian opera. I remember the old Vic Company coming to Johannesburg with Irene Worth in Midsummer Night's Dream. She must have been in something else, but she was Hippolyta. Dimly, I remember that. I did not see any productions of any great plays whatsoever in my youth. Hmm. There weren't any. And when we speak of your youth, you moved to London when you were 20. Well, I had uh, finished school, gone, sent by my very advanced parents to Switzerland and to Italy to learn French and Italian, Hmm. which I did very happily. I had a wonderful year out. I then went back to Johannesburg to go to university, all of which was very politically, it was boiling and bubbling all the time. There was no point, I think, in my childhood where I was unaware of the country I was living in Mm. or the regime, even though all South Africans will tell you about their blessed, sun-filled, strangely unaware childhoods. There was a dichotomy in us. Hmm. Both were true. But I did come back to a university which was very left-wing and very active. And I read English and French there. I began to do a bit of acting then because, quite simply, the university players had the best parties on the campus. I didn't... (laughs) I had no particular interest in acting at all, nor had I been fired up by it in the least. In fact, I wanted to be a doctor for a large proportion of my early teens, I thought that would be a tremendous thing to do, to become a very, very famous surgeon. It was only when I came to England, the fashion then was to leave Mm -hmm. the country. My whole generation left and left and left. But you left to leave, not in pursuit of Uh, this career. No, one left to get the hell out of South Africa. Mm-hmm. It was untenable. It was unbearable. Friends of yours were being arrested. There was a lot of police activity on the campus. And, you know, it was a nasty place to be. I could have stayed and become very brave, like a lot of people did. My hat is eternally doffed to them. I took the weaker way out, which was to run away from mm-hmm. a country in trouble. And I came to London, and everybody said, why don't you do an audition for drama school? Because it's fun. But there was nothing serious behind it at all, Hmm. I have to tell you. Yet, obviously, 
the talent was already there. You got into Lambda. I got into every drama school I auditioned for, <laughs> to my amazement. And the day, I'm, then I had to tell my parents, please, can you help me about this? Because I seem to have a career opening in front of me for which I have no responsibility. So can you help? Mm -hmm. They were wonderful because they were surprised, I think. Anyway, it's true to say when I got to Lambda, I thought, yes. Oh, what a discovery. Hmm. This is a wonderful thing to do. Because I think I loved literature. I loved the language. I loved words. I had read English at university. I had had staggeringly good English teachers at school. And certainly my love of the language was the big springboard into this thing. Hmm. I thought, what more wonderful thing than to find out the inner recesses of the greatest language, I thought, um, for drama that exists. And I'm, we're not wrong, are we? <laughs> but exploring literature is one thing. Embodying it is another. Oh, they you, all melded together. There's no problem at all. Which is why I think I started talking to you about the absolute miracle of seeing when you read a text, actors are always being sent scripts and texts. So how do they manage this strange transition from the print on the page to an embodiment in their heads? It's the same process. Hmm. It's not different. So the training then that you got at Lambda, which I presume had technical aspects to it in some part, all of that was natural to you? I just thought I'd find the right thing to do. Hmm. I just thought it was completely magical hmm. to lose yourself in somebody else's character, to explore human nature, to allow yourself the thrill of getting out of the streets and into a mad world, my masters. Presumably there were good parties as well. <laughs> I'd, I've forgotten those now. They were in my, but of course. In my recent past. But given what you said about that you didn't see a great deal of theater growing up in no. South Africa, the other opportunity you had coming to London, presumably was that even at the time that you were in school, you were able to start seeing work. Yes. Was that the case? Oh, I did what I could to see everything. Mm -hmm. An early memory is West Side Story. Hmm. An early memory is Paul Schofield's Lear, hmm. unforgettably so. An early memory is Vanessa being glowingly unforgettable as Rosalind and As You Like It. Hmm. All these were transporting experiences for me who had... I was a tabula rasa. I didn't know anything. I had no preconceptions Well, at that's all. what's interesting, because mm. as you say, you're coming from the literature and understanding and knowing the literature, even though it seemed a natural extension to perform it, you didn't have the same depth of reference until you got there. But do you need that? I mean... I don't know, do I, you? I, I, I'm guessing you say no. No, I don't think so. Hmm. You know, it wasn't so much literature as the language. I, mm -hmm. I need okay. to make a difference here. I found words always. Again, it might be because South Africa is a very polyglot country. I always loved languages. I was quite good at Italian. I was quite good at French. I picked up languages and the sound of the people make. And I think language more than literature. When I say the English language, I just find it 
and always have the most dense and flexible and rich source of pleasure that I can think of. Hmm. Um, and I could begin to make little comparisons because of my dim knowledge now of French literature and stuff like that. So that wasn't the case. The, the thing is a response to words, okay. probably. So when you got out of Lambda, did you quickly find work or did you have to struggle for a time? I have no struggles. I'm touching wood here, except I can't see much <laughs> wood around. Um, no, I was rather snapped up. I was very, very lucky indeed. I went straight from leaving Lambda to my first rep. We still had this wonderful system, which is now a little bit depleted in England, of every single town had a theatre. And indeed, rep. And I went to five reps in the space of as many months. And it was an absolutely marvellous training ground. I mean, it was just heaven. Hmm. And there I met, I mean, the library theatre in Manchester, the famous library theatre, as it then was, run by a man called David Scase. He was a bit of a talent spotter. And he hoiked me and Patrick Stewart into his company. Hmm. And we did a, memorably, a play by a playwright called David Mercer. And there we were in Manchester, which is... I had to do a Lancashire accent in Manchester itself. A source of deep humiliation, because I remember the audience laughing at my <laughs> truly, truly terrible Lancashire accent. So it was those beginnings, you know. And then one day I was doing another play, and they said, do you know who's in the audience? I said, don't tell me, don't tell me. It was a matinee. And it was apparently John Barton and maybe even Peter Hall. They were, they were scouting. For this new, that was the quarter centenary season. They were then setting up the famous Wars of the Roses season. This is the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is the Royal Shakespeare. The, but it had almost become the Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm -hmm. Peter's creation, really. It changed from the Stratford Memorial Theatre to the Royal Shakespeare Company under his baton. And I was asked to go and audition for Stratford, which I did. But because I was busy, I could only do it on a Sunday. And the theatre was dark. And there was Peter Brook and Peter Hall and John Barton in the auditorium. But I couldn't see them. It was very dark. Hmm. And I did an audition on a Sunday. Just one working light <laughs> on that stage. And I was very nervous because... And I wandered off into the wings and got lost. And I heard this voice saying, Janet, Janet. I was stuck behind some scenery somewhere. And it was Peter, and he asked me if I would play La Pucelle. Would you know, I sound as if I knew anything about the plays, and I didn't. And I didn't know who that was, and I said, I'm sorry, Peter, I don't know who La Pucelle is. And he says, it's that little Joan of Arc in Henry VI. Anyway, that's how it all began. That's what I came to the company to do. And it was unbelievably exciting time. Peggy Ashcroft was heading the company. The young David Warner was there playing Henry VI and discover, great discovery of Peter's. Donald Sindon was in the company. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Craig, Ian Holm, legendary, wonderful actor to all of us. Uh, Paul Schofield was in the company as well, not for, not for the Wars of the Road, but it was, a, it was 76 people sitting in a rehearsal room. Can you imagine? Wow. Yeah, that first day. Wow. And so, now, if my research is correct, that production was such a success, it ran or it stayed in their repertory for a good bit. Is that correct? What happened was that the three history plays of Henry VI 
had been squashed into two mm-hmm. by John Barton's mighty blue pen. And Richard III, which is its next-door neighbour, so it became a, a tripartite thing. Mm. And that played morning, noon and night. It was very fascinating. Ten o'clock in the morning, the curtain went up on Henry VI. Two o'clock on Edward IV, as they renamed the squashed version, and Richard III in the evening. Hmm. And it was an unforgettable day. Like the Peking Opera, really. People came for picnics. I remember walking home at night to my digs in Sheep Street in Stratford from the theatre on the very first night of that trilogy. And there was you just, you just got a feeling you were on the verge of something wonderful. Anyway, the Sunday papers came out. And Harold Hobson, who was then critic of the Sunday Times, tells a story how he found a Frenchman weeping copiously in the high street in Stratford at about midnight that night, saying to himself, Ah, ce coup de mouchoir, comme c'était terrible. He was talking about Peggy Ashcroft slapping the face of York with a bloody handkerchief. That handkerchief, how terrible it was. And he quoted that story in his review. Mm-hmm. You know, of, of people being haunted by that. It was sort of butchery and violence. Anyway, they expanded those three into the seven history plays, hmm. to answer your question. So it, it, it grew. It, it grew like Lulu. Hmm. Mm. So in this period at the RSC, I mean, you talk about being discovered by Peter Hall um, and John Barton. And I have it that in 1964, you're playing Catherine and Taming the Shrew. In 65, you're playing Portia and Merchant of Venice. Rosalind in Love's Labor's Lost and Ophelia in Hamlet, all presumably in rep, all around the same time. That's pretty extraordinary. No, that's how it was. It was a crazy place. <laughs> you, you, you just did everything. Well, you did everything, but but for someone who's so young, clearly, I mean, there had to have been other young actresses in the company. Well, there, there were other plays in the repertoire and there were other parts. It wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't hog them. Oh, and I left you. out Be- Beatrice in uh, Much Ado About yes, Nothing as well. Yes, but these were sequential years. Okay. Uh, actually, they weren't all at once. Doing these great roles. Now, they're not, as you say, an autonomous queen. These are, but these are some of the best female roles that Shakespeare wrote. Mm, Were these fully discoveries for you? We talked about the fact that you hadn't seen as much and you say you don't need to have seen as much. So were you coming at these with very little preconception? Yes, but that's the only way to come at them. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, I mean, what do you do with 400 years of Shakespearean history? You can't know it. You can only shiver, pull your socks up and get on with it because... It's your turn now, and you don't know what other people did. You might hear stories about how wonderful this moment was or that moment was in a previous performance. But you, all Shakespearean actors just have to bloody well get on with it and hmm. do their thing, don't they? they can't, there's, you have no choice. So I don't think seeing plays as a child... I might be wrong, you know, will change your interpretation of something later on. Hmm. I I think I would have found it so distant that I couldn't relate to it then. Well, I wasn't even thinking about it as a child, but, you know, 
certainly there are there are some actors that like to in those days it would have been only the opportunity to listen to other performances because certainly things were on occasion recorded or they were done for the radio i wonder if that's true i've never never in all my experience found actors listening to other actors hmm. because you have to come at it freshly hmm. i now will make a confession and um, I'm sure I'll be castigated for this, but I remember Michael Williams and I listening to the orotund flutings, if I can only put it that way, and I mean no disrespect, of Edith Evans playing Rosalind, a recording by Argo of her performance. And this is the delicacy and fragility of theatre. It doesn't last. We well, are such stuff... As that moment is made, that dream today is made of. Tomorrow's dream is a different one. And she had already passed into a history that I couldn't touch. A glass wall of taste and style and history would prevent me relating to her. Her, her way of speaking was different. Her attitude to everything would have been different from mine. And therefore her performance would have been of no help to me at all. And to hear her, this is the forest of it belonged to a history that I could not relate to at all. And we laughed, Michael and I, hmm. with a kind of respectful relief that we, we didn't belong to that world. And our world was the world we were in then, that day. God knows, every hamlet, every year is a fresh hamlet because that young man is living in that year, not the next year or the year before. And I think that's the strength and beauty of theatre. It has nothing to do with its past, although it rolls underneath it like a surge of the ocean. But actually, every actor in the todayness of their work is what brings freshness to the play. And I... There's something in me, Howard, I have to tell you, that is against archive recordings of plays. I know that one day all the plays we do are going to be laughed at by future generations, just as we laugh at other ones behind us, because they don't hold water anymore. Huh. Very few of them do. I recall being played, and I think it was to illustrate the very point I might be making, Michael McCone, who was the director of Lambda when we were there, one day, an unforgettable sun-filled morning, I remember, brought some of these old recordings. What was his point? Maybe he was saying to us, I can't recall. I remember the recordings, but not what he said about them, of Sarah Bernhardt playing Fairdon. And the sim you're, you're demonstrating for me, these are like old cylinder, cylinder. recordings you're talking about. I, that, that's right, my finger's in a circle. Yes. Tennyson doing the Charge of the Light Brigade. Hmm. And Bernhardt doing Phaedre all on one breath, spitting out the last line, 30 lines of Alexandrins, in a high, strange, fluting voice in French, of course. <laughs> Just like other beings, like aliens, they, weren't, they didn't live in our world. <laughs> they were from somewhere else. And I know that's going to happen. And unless there are fervent students of the theatre who want to see what people did in 2011 how they were, how they dressed, how they moved, as sort of archaeological digs, that would be okay. But it's not going to help them to play those parts. 
in the future. And I think one will be judged by a sort of truth content Geiger counter. I can see there was a film of Sarah Bernhardt playing something and it was very stylized and peculiar. Mm. And there was another film of La Duse, the great Italian actress, black and white, shivery film. She seemed very true because she was undemonstrative. She wasn't... Um, she, her gestures were minimal. She seemed very modern in her gestures. So we thought she was a better actress, but she might not have been, hmm. for all we know. There must have been tremendous excitement in a Bernhardt theatre when the curtain went up and that maniac did her stuff on the stage, filling it with a kind of zing, filling the auditorium with a kind of zing. But that's what theatre's about. It's not about recordings. So I am nervous of recording stuff. Hmm. I know we have an archival, you know, sort of greed to record everything, but I'm not sure it's a good idea. Hmm. You had the opportunity in the late 60s to tour the U.S. Yes. playing Beatrice. Was that your first time? No, we opened the Amundsen Theatre. Oh, in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion okay. in 1967 with The Taming of the Shrew. They invited the Royal Shakespeare Company to open that huge new mm-hmm. theatre in downtown Los Angeles. It was a thrilling thing for us all. Hmm. It was absolutely thrilling. We were there for a good three months, I think. And I do remember it's a theatre that seats 2,200 people. Did we want microphones, they asked us. And true to form, we pulled ourselves up and said, microphones? We don't do microphones. All that's changed now. (laughs) People do do microphones. We thought we had the voice for it. And maybe speaking has changed. I think perhaps it has in the time I can think of when I've started and when I'm talking to you now. Hmm. That um, the big extravagant voices, the voices that can conjure words out of the air, that can chuck them against the back of a auditorium with tremendous ease and dexterity. There are not many of those left, I think, people who can do that. What was the experience of playing Shakespeare for Americans at that time? Do you have any idea? Was there a sense of discovery on our part? Yeah. Or on your part? Well, I'll give you an example. That Beatrice you talk about, indeed we did. We went back for another tour. We even played Detroit, the Fisher Theatre. Kill Claudio, says Beatrice to Benedict in the church. Having played it in Stratford, unfortunately, there's a kind of mild upheaval in the audience about five minutes before that line as people who think they know the play, and it's a crux in the play, get a little bit sort of excited about how she's going to do it. Rather like, I suppose, people waiting for Lady Bracknell to say a handbag. That sort of thing. So the kind of literate coteries in the audience would get all excited about it. And then you get you, you yourself on stage get more and more nerve-wracked about how you're going to perhaps be saying this great line. So it's all really rather vexed. But the wonderful thing was in America, they didn't know the line was going to come. So when you said, kill Claudio, 
they all went, oh! It took them by surprise. And there wasn't an actor amongst us who didn't prefer that freshness. Interesting. Yeah. So Shakespeare could indeed be new. Yes, and it is in America, and that is absolutely lovely. Hmm. Very often you'll hear us all say, I wish there was a moratorium on Shakespeare so it would be fresh again for people. That's interesting because, not specifically with Shakespeare, but I think there are many, and I'll include myself, who look to England and say, classics don't have to be done only once every 15 or 20 years. You can have multiples so that it's not only the event of a new Hamlet or the event of a new Lear. Over here, while certainly those plays are always events, they come with such frequency that they're less laden with how do they compare to the last one. Yes. And, you know, we've had, we, we had McKellen's Lear a couple of seasons ago. Now we have Jacoby's Lear. You know, how wonderful to see great actors yes. in relative proximity. Mm. But it's unusual. They're imports to us. They're not homegrown. No, but I think um, with, with a, leg- a dramatic legacy like ours, how can you possibly ignore them? Right. But I think um, people begin to own them a little bit. Mm. They, they get a little proprietorial. But I think that's kicked in the butt quite, quite happily now. Mm. You know, we know that we want new stuff. Mm. You had left South Africa, as you say, like so many of your generation. When did you first return to work on the stage in South Africa? For the opening of the Market Theatre, which was in 1976. I'd always gone back there, you know. It has exerted a pull over me. It's like a hectic in my blood, that country, because it is a fascinating place. And I didn't leave the country saying, I will never return. I left the country saying, I have got to get out of here because it's stifling. It is an insult to the human spirit, which is... I always felt politics very deeply. Um, My wonderful Aunt Helen, I shan't flag her up another time, but I will just say this. She was an opposition member of Parliament for 35 years, Helen Sussman. And um, I think... I heard stories a lot of time. People would say, how courageous you were, Helen, how courageous. And she would say, nonsense, I just cannot stand injustice. And maybe, although we weren't blood-related, she was my aunt by marriage, something of that of that anger got into my bloodstream. I can only put it as a kind of simmer in my bloodstream. The injustice of it has always burned a little bit in me. So I'd kept a bunch of friends in Johannesburg who were like-minded. The famous Market Theatre was founded in 1976 by a great man to whom Peter Brook himself would doff his hat, and his name is Barney Simon. Um, And Athel Fugard, a man you respect greatly, all of these people were involved, and the Market Theatre was founded, and I went back to do... Um, for shortly afterwards, a play called The Death of Bessie Smith. 
The Albee play. The Albee play. With John Carney, Winston Choyner and me, directed by Barney. And we opened the newly dug out, built up old market, which was the market theatre. Hmm. With that, that was the only time I appeared on the stage. I then went back in 1987, went back home to see my parents to pick up on the awful black buzz of Johannesburg. It was like I had to dip my toe back into there, into into this place. I went to see John Carney in a play. I sat there and at the interval and I kept on thinking, oh, John, you deserve something better than this. By the end of that evening, I remember the idea of Othello had popped into my head and it wouldn't go away. It was like a fledgling nesting in here. just wasn't going to go away. It wasn't going to fly out of my head. And the next day I asked John Carney if he would like to play Othello. And I said, but you have to be strong because I want to direct it. I suddenly, quite suddenly, wanted to direct. Hmm. You'd not directed at all before that? Not one jot or tittle. Hmm. And so, that was the biggest, most exciting learning curve ever. I read the play that night and I realized it's the story of a black man humiliated by a white thug. That's the story of Othello. That's it. Finish. That's it. And that was the metaphor for apartheid. Well, you say that you discovered that. Had you not encountered Othello before? Or no. was it because you were reading it in South Africa? I was reading it, A, in South Africa, B, with something in mind. I hadn't read the play before. Hmm. Just because you do Shakespeare don't mean you read all them plays. Right. So, <laughs> But again, it was possible that during your time at the RSC you'd seen a production. But it's fascinating. Now, we should say... Oh, I had. I'd seen oh. Olivier's. Oh, okay. So, but, which, which, but you saw it in a new light. Obviously. It made no sense to me, Olivier's Othello, at all. Well, because, of course, you knew he was not a black man. Dead right. Now, we should explain that the market, as I understand it, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, from the moment it was opened, was a theater where black and white could mix right. on stage, which was very, very And rare. in the audience. And in the audience. And in the bars. Mm. So, as you say, now here you come with a play that without, I don't know how you staged it, but even without overt uh, homages to what was going on in the country, the, the, it's so politically loaded to do that play. Well, what was interesting was this. The ANC, if you remember, the government in exile was in exile. And um, we needed for ourselves and indeed, well, we needed to get permission from the culture desk of the of the ANC in exile um, for John to play this part because hmm. we saw Shakespeare as a protest playwright hmm. and we had to convince. It wasn't difficult. I waxed lyrical. <laughs> To convince the culture desk of the exiled ANC that uh, Shakespeare was a political playwright. And mm. this story had to be told because this was the story of apartheid, which it is. It is. Mm. A black man is made into an idiot by a hypocritical, thuggish, white psychopath, which seemed the perfect metaphor for apartheid to us. And so we got permission 
he felt okay about doing it then. John. John Carney. Yeah. And we did it. We didn't need to cross any T's or dot any I's because the story spoke for itself. And while we were playing, it was unbelievably exciting. It created a sort of buzz because it was telling the story of the day. It's a quote. Shakespeare's plays, like iron filings to a magnet, seem to attract any crisis that is in the air. Somebody once said that about hmm. Shakespeare's plays, and it's true. They attract the crisis of the day. The black audience in the market theatre rose from its normal 15% to 20, 25, 30, 35. It was way going like there's a huge graph up to about 60% hmm. in the, uh, of people coming to see this play. Word had got about that their story was being told but not patronised. Not, there's no patronage going on. This was not agitprop. This was not, you know, your normal po protest kind of rhetoric. This was great poetry. Hmm. And a story was being told. And I tell you, the young audience just said, you know, I heard about this play and I'm coming to see it. None of them had seen it before. How did you find the experience of being a director, as you say, for the first time? Completely engrossing and completely thrilling because for the first time I wasn't confined to thinking only about my part. I could think about everybody else's. Hmm. And I found that liberating and wonderful because, of course, when you're an actor, you have to close down. You have to see the world through your eyes only. That's how a character behaves in a play and that's how we behave in life. But a director must see the entire arc. He must care about everybody equally and he must suck the meaning, the marrow out of the bones of the play to make it cogent to himself and therefore to the audience. And so I was finding that really, really, really stretching, thrilling. And the most wonderful thing is to help, because of my experience with Shakespeare, I suppose, I was able to help actors if they knocked their shins against a problem. Hmm. It seems to have been a watershed moment for you because it seems from that point forward you seemed to be acting less and less and directing more and more. Sort of. The thing was I made a film with Ian McKellen, with Ava Gardner, with Benny Keith um, in 1980 about the Lawrences. Priest of Love. Priest of Love. And I discovered halfway through doing the film that I was pregnant. And so now I had a, a little boy. And, and so life also began to exert its power. And I, um, I was unable to do as much acting as I perhaps would have liked to. But it's true to say that you, you, you have to doff the hats, you have to change the hats round. And I... You know, doing a play is a really damn hard thing to do. And you've heard this a dozen times from women like me. You have to leave a kid at the best time of the day for a kid, which is five o'clock in the afternoon. When they come back from school, they now want to see their mother and they want to go to bed and it's bath time. And that magic time that makes childhood quite wonderful has gone. You have to be in some seedy little dressing room getting ready to do a play. 
and it ceased to have the glow and grip that it once had for me. I had to let that go. By the time Joshi was ten, I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I've got to be with him. There are priorities in life. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think actresses have to do this juggling, and it's quite hard to do. But as a director, you don't have to be there every night. I mean, the great joy is that you rehearse during the day, you have that insane two weeks when you put it on, and then it's on, and you can go home at night. Hmm. So, in a way, it's very pragmatic. Interesting. But you didn't just stick to London with your directing because you did work in Wales. You went back to South Africa several times over the years. Now, presumably your son was growing older and maybe you had more more freedom. Yeah, yeah. I was managing my timetable better, I think. But I do want to ask you, and, and not to, to focus entirely on the, the South African experiences, but, but I'm fascinated that you did a version of The Good Woman of Setswan. You did a version of The Cherry Orchard. Were those done to make them more specific to South Africa? Completely. That was the idea. I then saw that the classics, which we began to talk about earlier on in our conversation are terribly useful things because they reinterpret an age, which is why they're classics. They go on talking about a problem, Hmm. which always occurs in human nature or the history of a nation. And The Good Woman of Setswan is a play that asks the question, can you be poor and good? A universal problem. I set it in Johannesburg in a kind of mythical Soweto and I called it Sharkville, the good person of Sharkville. There are lots of sharks cruising around looking to see how they can eat you up or cheat you or bite your legs off. Mm. And poverty is an urban, eternal urban problem in the Sowetos of this world. So that's where I said that one. The other one, the cherry orchard, which came in 1997, was because that's the story of the new order taking over from the old. The peasant buys the estate. And that's what happened to South Africa in 1994. Hmm. A new order took over from the old. So it told the story that I needed to tell. Did you do the adaptations? Or yes. Yourself? The first one I did with a friend of mine called Trina Mslope, who's a great Zulu storyteller. And we sort of did it together. We collaborated. Hmm. And the second one... I worked beginning with uh, an actor called Roger Martin who was entranced with the idea and had started to work on it. And then I developed it from there. Hmm. And how were they received? Were, were, these work, were the works known in South Africa in their original form? I didn't do them there. Well, I did, uh, did Sharkville there. Right. But they didn't know the original. Mm. Oh, and, and Free State. And the was Free State here, I did here say, yeah. in Birmingham. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. So, uh, because I don't want to miss talking about it, um, we started with Antony and Cleopatra, and very recently you tackled it as a director, and you mentioned very fleetingly Kim Cattrall, who played oh, yeah. Cleopatra. Um, you did it up in Liverpool? We did it in Liverpool. Um, Kim became a friend when we did a play together. Uh, called Whose Life Is It Anyway? Right. About five years ago. 
I suppose. And I met for the first time, became friends with somebody who was a zonking great television star because of Sex in the City, but had an absolutely genuine curiosity about her own talent as a, what she'd call a proper actress, you know. <laughs> somebody who did proper kind of what we're talking about, mm -hmm. these big classics, which you need to do to test your acting muscles. And she was not complete alien to that. She'd done a Miss Julie in the U.S. Absolutely. I saw her years ago yes. in Michael Frayn's Wild Honey, which is an adaptation there of Chekhov. There you go. So, not a novice. No, by no means a novice. But she said to me, what's the best part you've ever played? And I said, the streets and miles ahead um, was clear parted. She said, do you think I could play it? And I said, absolutely you could. Absolutely. So she said, well, why don't we do it together? So that's how it began. It began, as most things do, with the meeting, you know, a chance mm -hmm. meeting. So what was the experience as a director, 40 years on, from a piece of literature that was such a success for you, to then share that with another actress? Brilliant. An absolutely wonderful experience. I think it was Jack Lemon who said, you know, when, when the elevator gets to the top floor, you have to send it down again. And in some ways, there can be nothing better than passing the baton on. That's the only pleasure in life, is sharing what you've got with somebody else. And I knew precisely, maybe precisely is the wrong word, but I knew very clearly what kind of a girl, a woman, I wanted Cleopatra to be in this modern world. And having had the experience of deeply being in Cleopatra's world, I had no doubt that I could pass on those feelings, ideas, opinions, colours, shades to Kim. Hmm. And so that's what happened. The whole structure of the play I was now very clear about. Maybe it had sunk into my bones over these years without... Often when you don't think about something, it begins to take shape. Do you think that a woman directing that play yes. sees it differently. Yeah, I didn't even have to finish the question. You buzzed in immediately. Yes, absolutely. It's never, ever directed by a woman. Hmm. Very few of these damn plays ever are. And that one, most particularly, it's, I tell you why, we're saddled with Elizabeth and Richard in their glorious, bejeweled, sexed-up heyday. Aren't we? And so the play is only about sex, but it's not. Hmm. It clearly is not. It's a much more mysterious and complex and exquisite play which has passed through the prism of Shakespeare's genius from Plutarch and has become an essay about the mysterious unevenness of coupledom. We know exactly where Antony stands because he says it again and again and again and again and again in the play. But her mystery is much greater and more intriguing. Hmm. We never know how much she loves him. Hmm. She acts it a lot. She pretends it a lot, but what's real and what's true. And so it took an enormous amount of pleasure for me to begin to sow doubt in people's minds about her, her relationship with Anthony. 
not his with hers, hers with his. And that has become, it was beautifully picked up by the critics, I'm happy to say. But I was absolutely clear about how modern a play I wanted it to be. Hmm. Very often, and it's certainly not uncommon, for actors to become directors, very often, once they do so, they are loath to go back to acting. You have certainly not excluded acting from your life. You mentioned uh, Whose Life Is It Anyway. Um, you did a Coriolanus. Uh, you did Dream of the Dog recently. Yes, are that was these, interesting. Yeah. Are you as rewarded now by acting? I think so, and I'm going back. I'm going to Cape Town in this fall to do a new play, which has been written for me. A terrible thing happened. I, I directed Hamlet in 2006 from a Cape Town company, a very young company. And on the night, three nights before we were due to fly to Stratford-on-Avon to open their, what was called the Complete Works Festival, a murder happened in Cape Town. And the young boy who was playing Rosencrantz was executed through oh the God. back of his head on a Cape Town traffic island. Hmm. One of the ghastly, murderous, unnecessary, wayward, cruel incidents that happened in uh, a, a violent South Africa. And this, um, I have no need to say how much it shook everybody to its foundations. But I learned so much from that about how a great work of art can accommodate the tragic in life. I think had we not been doing Hamlet, I don't know how that company would have survived this dreadful, unspeakable event. But somehow Hamlet, which is all about death and dying from every aspect of, of it, like a glittering black diamond, uh, was able to absorb and expand the cast of young actors' emotions. And it was allowable for Hamlet. Mm. Had we been doing Blythe Spirit or something, something else would have happened. In all of this conversation, we've been talking about very serious plays. And I just want to ask you, you, in at least, well, not entirely serious, but either classics or serious, because yes, certainly yes. you did do the Shakespeare comedies. But in the midst of all of these credits sits the Sisters Rosenzweig. Yes. And I'm just wondering, it seems anomalous. How did you... Come to that and choose to do that. Well, I've done a lot of comedies, but, you know, I don't know. People take a view of you. It's nothing to do with you. I, I mean, I've done the the best, worst Robin Hood uh, film that's ever been made. It is so terrible that nobody ever quotes it, but it was the greatest fun that I've ever had with George Siegel playing Robin Hood. Bet you don't know about that one. Um, and I've played a lot of the Shakespeare comedies, and... Um, the Sisters Rosenzweig seemed enormous fun when it came up. And we enjoyed it thoroughly. So, I mean, I don't find that too anomalous. Hmm. Um, the fact that... I don't know what... Um, I think actors should do everything, really. And I, I would like not... You know, life is so short, and the theatre can yield its riches if you allow it to. But I couldn't 
ever, I don't think, ever just be satisfied with being entertaining. I find that, you know, exploring other aspects or allowing theatre to be transformative in some way because of where it sits in a political situation or what it's got to say about the present is what fascinates me most hmm. about the theatre. I want to close by quoting you from your book, Acting with Shakespeare, the comedies. You say very early in the book that talking about acting is a contradiction in terms. It is a doing experience. Yeah. I want to thank you for spending an hour talking about <laughs> acting. Janet Sosman, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you very much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Taz Matar. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Special thanks for this edition is due to David Brewson. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded in Imachem Studios in London. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization, and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and The American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.